Hello everyone and welcome to Security Escape, where we discuss current research and events related to security and strategic studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, November 21st, for our episode on African security. I am your producer, Clarice, and today with us we have Gershon Adela interviewing Professor Christopher Roberts. Gershon graduated from the Center for Military, Security and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary and now is a PhD student in political science at the same university. And our guest, Professor Roberts, is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. He's the president of African Access Consulting. He was also a founding director of the Canadian Council on Africa in 2002 and served as its Western Canada vice president until 2009. His research focuses on Canadian foreign policy and international intervention in Africa, African comparative politics and political economy, and the security development governance nexus, with a regional focus on West Central Africa. It's an honor to have you with us today, and welcome to Security Escape! Thank you very much, Prof. Roberts, for joining us today. I look forward to a very interesting conversation because we've seen a lot happening in, in the African context. Foreign policy worldwide has changed significantly, especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And this entails a change in perspective and a review of how we approach security in different parts of the world. And one of such regions is Africa. Unfortunately, the Ukraine war remains a central security concern to Canada and especially the West. Africa faces a lot of security concerns, but unfortunately, these are often ignored. I would like to start our conversation today by highlighting two significant advancements in African-led solution to conflict and security, which I believe most people might not be aware of. Ghana took on the presidency of the UN Security Council for the month of November and is spearheading two very important issues or discussions. The first one has to do with improving resiliency in peacekeeping operations, and the second one is on counter-terrorism in Africa. Another one which is very important that I believe it's making the airwaves everywhere is the fact that on Wednesday, the AU was able to broker a peace agreement between the Ethiopian government and then the Tigray rebel forces. That's raising hopes for an end to Ethiopia's devastating civil war that began two years ago. What do these developments suggest for African solution to other security issues on the continent? This is critically important that I think that we start with perhaps uh, positive news coming out of the continent on security issues. And we will get into, or probably we'll get into some of the significant security challenges that have developed on the continent, particularly since the early 2010s, where the security situation across many countries has deteriorated after really tremendously positive signs after 2000, that first decade of the new of the new millennia was one of reducing violence and conflict, political conflict, civil war on the continent. And we've seen a, a sort of an upward trend the other way. So yes, um, we hope that the recent announcement, I'll talk about Ghana here in a second, but we hope talking about the Ethiopian war, which really was the largest uh, civil conflict on the continent that over the last two years, it was started in November of 2020. Uh, so again, COVID had already taken hold of the, uh, the attention of the world. 
This was a significant conflict between the federal government and one of the regions, and a region where the political leaders of that region had actually been in positions of national power for decades. But with a political change in uh, Addis Ababa, some of those uh, elites from the from that region were no longer in national positions of power, and so that was part of this this conflict. So one of I think one of our themes today, Gershon, you know, we've talked about this before, is not only is there sometimes a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge about ongoing conflicts in Africa, when when some outsiders think about African conflict. They don't try to understand the dynamics. They stereotype the dynamics. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've heard that notion of tribal. Anytime you've been working on Africa, you always hear about tribalism causes all of these problems. So so the Ethiopian conflict is tribalism between the, the Tigrayan region and the um, the Oromo or or other ethnic groups that, that now dominate in Addis. Right. And yet we don't we don't hear that simplified explanation for conflicts in Europe or for Latin America or for Asia, uh, and which is so frustrating for us that are, if you're trying to actually understand the basis of conflict uh, universally, plus then you have to understand the context. It's really important to, first of all, break away that say, well, somehow Africa is unique in the nature of the conflicts. No. And we'll talk more about that for sure today. We get back to this massive conflict. This was a conflict that was affecting millions of people that there's nobody knows for sure yet because of the, there's been so so much difficulty getting uh, information out of Ethiopia but we're talking that potentially hundreds of thousands of people have been have died during this conflict mostly civilians mostly due to lack of food being displaced uh, but there's been probably tens of thousands of combat casualties this was a major conflict which most of the world didn't really understand the extent of it. And this was even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So lack of international attention, you know, over the last two years, it seemed to be falling into an intractable situation. There didn't seem to be, for most outside observers, there wasn't enough international attention on the conflict. And the African Union, which had played significant roles in the 2000s to solve conflicts to raise peacekeeping forces to be the African solution to African problems major regional player seemed to be absent from this conflict and yet almost everybody's surprise hosted in South Africa the African Union many um, current but also elder states people mostly men but elder statesmen from from Africa with the stakeholders in the room were able uh, and again, with a surprise announcement to say that they had actually achieved what they have called already a permanent ceasefire. So this isn't a temporary ceasefire. This is a permanent ceasefire with a whole series of actual agreements to solve, hopefully, to end this actual conflict. And and so the African Union, which had been denigrated for the last two or three years on various conflicts, not just Ethiopia, seems to have finally got its act together in ways that is actually very positive. Now, is the war for sure over? No. Is there, is there, do we know for sure that, that all of the agreements will be kept in place? No. Do we know, you know, what is going to be the nature of the international presence to verify, right? Trust, but verify. Is there going to be an actual peacekeeping operation? That's not in the cards yet. That hasn't been part of the agreement. There's going to be AU observers, but a very minimal amount. So is the war for sure over? No. 
But has the African Union done a positive thing when it had been considered its role in conflict resolution had been questioned across many conflicts? It's a yeah. positive sign. But I would like to get back to the Ghana question, which is also important, right? Because here in Ghana, which is your home country, Gershon, just for our listeners to know, here's Ghana as a member of the, you know, a non-permanent member of the Security Council. Currently, this month, November, is the president of the Security Council, which gives you some agenda-setting capabilities. But this small West African country has been traditionally, for decades, one of the top 10 peacekeeping troop contributors to international peace and security. This isn't just to Africa. Right. How many thousands of Ghanaian veterans served in Lebanon over the years, right? I mean, thousands, thousands and thousands. Yeah. So Ghana is recognized around the world as committed to peacekeeping, committed to international peace and security, uh, democratically elected government, facing some you know, financial uh, crises like many countries are in the world today, but yeah. is taking on the lead to try and make peacekeeping more resilient, try to improve the ability of the international community to fight legitimate counterterrorism. Yeah. Not when a government says it's terrorism, but objectively agreed upon forms of terrorism, which the international community, um, whether it can be regional or, or global, needs to coordinate better to counter. So yeah. the AU seems to be, right? The AU now is on maybe on the ascendant, which means that maybe the AU can now be um, once it's, let's say, hopefully mostly solved the Ethiopia crisis, even though it needs some follow through. There are mm -hmm. other conflicts we're going to talk about. Hopefully the AU can play a bigger role and refocus its attention to solve or at least to ameliorate or to provide at least a pathway to peace for some other conflicts. And you have Ghana sitting in the international arena at the center of the international arena at a critical time that is also trying to rehabilitate what has been really sort of a uh, decline of attention to peacekeeping over the last five to 10 years as yeah. an actual legitimate, supportable um, method of peace building, peace maintenance, those kinds of those kinds of activities. So, right. yeah, start with positive stuff and then we will maybe shift towards the continuing challenges. The, the whole idea of Ghana placing a lot of emphasis on peacekeeping and then counterterrorism actually points to the fact that the continent is facing a lot of security issues. And last Wednesday's agreement between the Ethiopian government and the Tigran rebel forces may seem to be a positive one, but then we should also appreciate the fact that there are a lot of security concerns on the continent, a lot of armed conflicts, a lot of internal conflict and transnational conflicts on the continent. Just to give our listeners a, a clearer idea or perspective as to the sort of insecurity the continent is facing as of now. Can you touch on a few significant internal or transnational armed conflict on the continent and how the African Union can approach it, taking clue from um, what it has done in Ethiopia? Yeah, an excellent question. Even before the West was so centrally focused on the war in Ukraine, there really wasn't as much attention to the, and I would say in many cases, again, it's not the entire continent, but the deteriorating security environment across Africa for a decade. It's been a decade that things were getting quite a bit better by the end of the Ethiopian Eritrean War in 2000, the end of the Democratic Republic Civil War 2002-2003, not that it completely ended, but more, you know, the, the international intervention in DRC, mostly African, had ended by 2002-2003. 
you had almost 10 years of all of the indicators showing that the level of political violence across the continent was declining in proportion to the level of democratization rising. So you had these things that were happening, plus you had a commodities boom, which actually was uh, driving growth across the continent. There's a lot of positive signs. Problem is, since about 2011, those positive signs in country after country have started to deteriorate. So we're going to talk about those. What I wanted to do, what I did just before we we came onto the podcast, is I went onto the uh, ACLED website, which is a fantastic resource for anybody looking at conflict around the world. It tracks empirically, as good as it can, individual incidents and events. And that's battles, that can be terrorist attacks, what we would call remote violence, like bombings, but also riots, protests, all these things. So what I did is I just went back to one year. So basically from October 2021 to um, to, the, to October 2022, and just pulled up two figures, two trends. One was what were the number of battles that took part only in Africa, what we would basically categorize as terrorist attacks. But also yeah. it tells you the number of events and the number of fatalities. Well, the number of events, which are just battles, you know, armed conflict battles, two sides shooting at, at each other and mm-hmm. or bombings right totaled in just that one year just under ten thousand events now that's the whole continent and they are concentrated in probably one quarter of the continent of the countries are most affected but that's almost ten thousand events thirty-two thousand fatalities and basically four or five six countries account for the majority of the fatalities and probably 10 to 12 countries account for the majority of the events And that was including Ethiopia, of course, right? So hopefully the Ethiopian conflict, which was one of the largest in terms of fatalities and combat fatalities, that would start to decline. Hopefully that's ended or it's going to it's going to end very soon. So then the issue is, okay, well, where where is this happening? What are the countries that are most affected? And I think between both you and I, Gershon, because of your research on Boko Haram, we should be able to tell our viewers a little bit about what is driving this dynamic, because this isn't a question of something that's been permanent. Some people say, well, Africa's always like that. No, there is something that has changed in the last decade. And if we don't understand what's changed in terms of resulting in more levels of this kind of violence and more insecurity for ordinary people, then we're never going to be able to, as an outside world or as the AU or as the regional organizations, try and figure out what's going, you know, how to improve the situation for the average person. So um, we should start from the West and we'll move our way across the continent to the East, because really over the last year, if we really want to focus on the last year, where is the real uh, significant violence? For the most part, we can even leave out a country like Libya. Libya has, we know that Libya is not completely sorted out. There's two and sometimes three competing governments that it suffered significant breakdown in 2011, again in 2014, again in 2020, right? There's been, there's been moments where the unfinished post-Qaddafi reconstruction project mm-hmm. of, the, of the country has not been s- sorted out. So yes, Libya is still a little bit un- unstable, but compared to what it was maybe two years ago and seven years ago, it's, it's not as bad. So if we start from the west coast of Africa, from basically Senegal, and we're looking across what we would call the Sahelian region, that area between the Sahara Desert and the lush sort of equatorial region of the of the continent, yeah. we almost can see, and I'm looking at my ACLED map right here, 
Mm -hmm. uh, which of course the view the listeners can't see but i again i recommend people going to acled and poking around the data there that's very easy to use that there seems to be there's almost a line across the continent from mali right through to somalia that is this arc of instability it's sort of just above the equator and it goes right across and this is where you see most of the political violence activity the, the number of fatalities is high the the number of battles the number of terrorist attacks so what is going on so first of all let's then focus this into maybe i'm going to say six distinct conflicts but they're not all completely unrelated so the iron triangle of jihadist insurgency that incorporates Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, then the Boko Haram area of northeast Nigeria, northern Cameroon, Chad as a particular area. Again, I'm not saying that these are completely distinct, but there's a central focus. In southern part of Cameroon and also in Nigeria, there is large levels of, of either insurgency or sometimes terrorist violence. And we'll get into that later in the episode. Sudan still, Sudan itself, in terms of its national politics, in terms of South Sudan, in terms of Eastern Sudan, has all sorts of conflict dynamics there. And then, of course, we have, I'm going to leave aside Ethiopia for now. Somalia is still facing Al-Shabaab violence. We've just recently had a massive, horrific car bombing in downtown Mogadishu that killed, I think, 100, 150 people, injured 300 and then, of course, the really emerging conflict, which I think people have really not grasped outside of the continent, is the deteriorating security situation of Eastern Congo, which right. is not a domestic conflict. It is, It has domestic elements, but it has significant transnational elements. Right. And so my first thing I'll just throw out to you, because I want you to talk to us about uh, your research on Boko Haram, is the notion of you know, historically, we would divide conflict into interstate conflict, right? Two recognized sovereign governments that were fighting a war, uh, which is not that common in Africa. Mm -hmm. And yet the idea that, well, then the opposite of a, an interstate war is an intrastate war, which yeah. is local grievances, local, you know, it's a civil war. And yet research has shown, even though, you know, many of us were sort of feeling like this was the case, but recent research has shown through this new database that um, is written about in, I'm just going to just make a quick reference for people that might want to investigate it. In the Journal of Modern African Studies in 2019, an article by Dwagaramungu, uh, yeah. among others, including uh, a, a scholar, Alex DeWall, that some might have heard of, wrote this piece about a new data set that they've developed called Redescribing Transnational Conflict in Africa. And what they did is they took old, all these old databases and then they sort of overlaid more qualitative uh, work, historical work, actually investigating more of the, uh, the context of conflicts. And they, they recoded a bunch of conflicts which, which were either counted as intrastate or very sort of you know, regional in a country as transnational conflicts. That there were not just transnational as in non-state armed groups transnational, they actually were pointing out that the transnationality has links to other governments. So the idea that Africa has had very limited interstate conflict comparatively is not as true as we've thought about it over the decades. Yeah. So for instance, coming back to what's going on in DRC right now, 
Um, M23 is this well-equipped uh, armed group, which has been active in the Eastern Congo for almost a decade now, I think. Is it purely a Congolese group, which has sort of emerged out of Congo's uh, sort of long-term instability and the Eastern Congo is a long way from the capital of Kinshasa in the West. It has two elements. One is, yes, there is, there is insecurity in Eastern Congo. There is concerns about, there's always been concerns about the national government, right back to the time of Mobutu. But there's also Rwandan security interests, which is we want to keep any potential challengers to the Rwandan regime as far away from Rwanda as possible. We yeah. want to keep those people that were affiliated to the genocidal regime of right. the, you know, the early 1990s who fled into this part of the country, right? Mm -hmm. and, and again, uh, there's ethnic relationships across these areas. So there is, even though Rwanda denies it, there is much evidence that M23 is not a separate independent group. It is supported, funded, perhaps directed from Kigali. So this is a transnational conflict. It is creating insecurity for people in Eastern Congo, but it is part of regional geopolitical dynamics and security planning and security strategy for specific governments. And yeah. so we, we're having growing rivalries between countries or leaders that used to be old buddies like uh, Kagame in Rwanda and Museveni in Uganda. They, they, yeah. were, they were brothers, but now we have a bit of rivalry there, right? Congo itself is becoming a central locus of both the old economy minerals and new economy minerals. So there is economic impetus. There is strategic political impetus. And unfortunately, Congo suffers because of this. And, yeah. and the Congolese people, most importantly, are suffering because of this. The UN mission in Congo, which is one of the largest missions, one of the most complex, it's actually conducted combat operations over the years against various non-state armed groups including M23, it's actually losing its legitimacy in some segments of the Congolese population because it hasn't done enough for security. And some people say, well, it should just go. But is it is it always just the people on the ground that is saying it should leave? Or is there, again, like everywhere else, is there social media? Is there, is there other interests that are also trying to delegitimate the UN mission, which includes local politicians, international geopolitical rivals, regional political rivals, etc. right? So the UN mission, you know, Ghana is trying to make um, the UN more resilient for the long term, but in specific missions, we're seeing real challenges to the notion that the UN peacekeeping mission is actually doing what we expect it to do. And this is going to be a challenge. Congo is a challenge to the UN process, to the AU, to the community. Right, because now DRC is wants to be a member. South Sudan is now a member, um, mm -hmm. and yet core members are Uganda and Rwanda, and there's some real rivalries between these countries. So, yeah. so my my biggest concern at the moment is the escalating DRC conflict because some of the other conflicts are at least not changing a lot. They're still not being solved, but the Congo crisis could end up looking more like the Congo crisis of the 1998-2003 period, yeah. which was horrendous for the number of civilians that were uh, either killed or died due to you know malnutrition or, or displacement. Um, we're talking one to four million Congolese died during that period. 
during what people call Africa's first world war. So I want to come back though, and let's go back and talk to you about Boko Haram because Nigeria is a country I've visited many times. I love Nigeria, but here's a country that's facing multiple security crises all at the same time. And it's not all Boko Haram. So what can you tell us about your research about Boko Haram and maybe give some insights into where you think the Nigerian situation, security situation is going over the last year? I would just say leading up to national elections early next year. Exactly. Boko Haram was one of my favorite topic issues when when I started my work on uh, my PhD, uh, my master's dissertation. And the whole issue is if you look at the the security situation in Nigeria, as uh, my supervisor will put it, Nigeria's uh, situation is like a piece of cake with different horizontal layers of different flavors. Now, if you take the country on a horizontal level, you realize some level of continuity, some level of uniformity across the, the country. But if you look at it in a vertical direction, you realize that, man, northern Nigeria, southern Nigeria are completely two different places. And these are stuff that came up as a result of colonialism and then the legacies of colonialism. So the whole idea of Boko Haram emerging initially as a Nigerian-only problem, with time, ended up spreading across the other regional or neighboring countries of Nigeria, with countries like Cameroon becoming a victim of uh, Boko Haram insurgency. We, we had issues where there were attacks in um, countries like Niger, there were attacks in countries like Chad. So you realize that you can't really situate some of these issues within a country-specific context. And over the years, that has been some of the major problems coming up when especially Western interventions come in play to solve security problems on the continent. Africa's security problem to me is very dynamic. It's really something you can't handle by looking at a single country situation. And one thing that was done right was the fact that in an effort to handle the Boko Haram insurgency, these countries came together to form the multinational joint task force where we have military personnel from all these affected countries coming in. But as you know, insurgent groups also, they evolve. So at a point in time, Boko Haram broke up into two different factions, the Islamic State of West African province, and then the Boko Haram itself. Now, this made the conflict much more complex to fight because initially the multinational joint task force was set up to fight Boko Haram. But now we have these people breaking up into two and the task force was still focused on Boko Haram. So you see the effort being targeted or being directed to Boko Haram, but ISWAP now has the freedom and liberty to do other things elsewhere. And it was really interesting to see how some of these things are playing out. And one thing that I, I really found out was the fact that the multinational joint task force was within the context of an African solution to an African problem. It wasn't like the J5 or Sahel that has the backing of the French. The multinational joint task force was something that was created from within. Yeah, it was very organic, brought up, you know, the five countries, including Cameroon, Chad, because they were the ones that are affected. I mean, it was very localized, right, right around the Lake Chad region. But yeah, very organic. Exactly. And you look at the way they go about doing their things, and it's very different from other 
security apparatus that have the backends of the Western countries, which we will talk about in the course of the podcast, to look at how some of these Western interferences are influencing responses to um, African security issues. So the Boko Haram issue was one of an interesting um, project that I personally took on, which I've come to appreciate a lot that I, I did that. But one other aspect is how some of these non-state actors even in some way ignite a form of interstate conflict in a way, because these people cannot be attacked to a particular country. They are doing their own thing, but then the havoc they wreck across countries now bring in a sort of interstate response. What I am afraid of is the fact that some of these things may end up creating confusion between heads of states of countries. Mm. And one thing I wanted to find out, has this spread of Boko Haram actually brought about some level of friction between the heads of states of the various affected countries, where you have instances where Chad will say that, okay, this actually originated from Nigeria, and Buhari, you failed to handle it. And now look at what is happening to my country. We are yet to see something like that. But looking at the, the conflict situation on the continent, I wouldn't rule out something like that from happening where heads of states will actually be locking heads over the fact that a particular president failed to deal with an internal security issue and is now having a broader ramification in its country, which I pray we don't get there. But I think you've identified an important dynamic here because even just looking at the multinational joint task force, um, for a long period, it seemed like Nigeria, uh, like you said, under Bahari, seemed to lose the initiative against Boko Haram for a long period when there had been some initiative gained against Boko Haram. Boko Haram seems to wax and wane in terms of, you know, even when it separates out, et cetera, et cetera. So Nigeria had really, over the last just two or three years, has ramped up its military effort in the Northeast. It's ramped up its procurement, both in terms of the Air Force and the Army. It's been serious about this. But then when Nigeria gets serious about this in the Northeast, but its partners don't necessarily stay as focused as, for instance, right next door in Cameroon, what happens? Well, the Boko Haram and ISWAP fighters then shift into Cameroon territory, which is not well governed. They shift north into Niger, right? They'll shift into wherever they can shift to, they will, will go because the pressure's not there. So I know that uh, both the Chadanian government um, for a long period of time, which was most, most active, and then the Nigerians have been complaining to the Cameroonians that they're not doing enough as part of these efforts. And yeah. why is that? And we'll talk about this a little later, because Cameroon it had bulked up its military forces from 2014, 2015, 2016, with the support of the international community, even with a United States special operations base being created in the north part of the country to help them fight terrorists. Uh, but the Cameroon government, by 2018, it started to shift its bulked up military down south to fight a different battle and that left much of northern the far north of cameroon uh, wide open for increasing movements of boko haram affiliated groups in back into northern cameroon and so can the nigerian forces cross the border without permission can the chadanian forces cross the border without permission not necessarily right so there's almost a an issue that we would see let's say in strategic bargaining of who is actually putting in the effort and who is actually the free rider 
And if you're a free rider for too long, other countries are going to stop letting you be a free rider, right? And I think Cameroon has been a free rider in the most recent iteration of this uh, dynamic in the North. We will talk about this a lot in our next question, but one thing I realize is the fact that most African countries do not face a single insecurity at a time. Right now in Nigeria, we have Heda Pharma uh, conflict alongside Boko Haram issues. And at the same time, we have these oil states conflict and all that. So you have an instance whereby a country is facing multiple insecurity situations at a time. And it spreads its military very thinly. Economically, it's being spread thinly. And it makes it so difficult for some of these countries to face the insecurity that they are facing. And to me, that is where I want to see much of the AU coming in to help these countries. And you pointed out clearly from the beginning, the AU seems to be lost in terms of maintaining the security within the continent for some time now. The Ethiopian issue is, is, is a step in the right direction. We have to see more of these in other areas, such as Nigeria, Cameroon is one of them, Chad is another one. We really need to see the role of some of these continental and sub-regional institutions in helping to solve the insecurity problems of the continent. I don't know if you have something to say about that. Yeah, I, I absolutely do, because you're absolutely right. But let's look at this then. Let's take off our international relations strategic studies hats and let's put on our African politics, comparative politics governance hats. Is there a correlation between those countries which are facing the largest waves of insecurity, armed, you know, contentious politics right through to civil war and governance of the countries, the political institutions, the level of uh, representation of responsibility, accountability of governments to provide public goods to the average person. And you could say um, there's almost a 100% correlation between weaker levels of governance, higher levels of violence and security. So absolutely, you want to have well-equipped, well-trained, well-regulated security forces, police and military to deal with these crises. But none of these crises are purely military crises. You're not going to achieve security through purely military means. And I think over time, Nigerian governments get that to a degree, but we know, and unfortunately, you know, Nigerians, any Nigerians listening to this podcast know that the number one priority of the Nigerian political system and political elites to this point has not been the providing public goods for a, the average Nigerian citizen. No. Whether the public good is security or the public good is uh, better roads, better economy, you know, regular access to power, electricity, all the things that we would assume. So Nigeria, you know, in some cases, they've had great military success. When Boko Haram and ISWAP-affiliated organizations grow and start to be real threats, They've had great conventional and counterterrorism military success against those groups. But the issue then is the influx of weapons into the country from various sources has now trickled through, not just into the northeast Boko Haram area, but they're now in the northwest. There used to be a train. The train that used to go to Abuja is no longer, I think it was Abuja to Kaduna, is no longer safe. Uh, the airport, the road from the airport near Abuja to Abuja is not safe. 
Um, a, a scholar we'll talk about later in our podcast from the University of Calgary, Tim Stapleton, a professor of African military history here, was in Nigeria over the summer and couldn't go to some of the places he was invited to go because of insecurity. That is new. That level of insecurity in the north, not just in the northeast, is new, right? This is it's getting worse, not getting better, even if Boko Haram is less of a threat. And then also in Nigeria, you have the Biafran separatist movement, which is in the southeast amongst very minority, but some Igbo, Igbo peoples. You now have an emergent Yoruba in, independence movement in the southwest. So Again, what have all this related to? People say, oh, it's tribalism. No, it's not tribalism. It is the lack of the Nigerian state, for whatever reason. We could talk about colonial inheritance and all this stuff. But it's the lack of the Nigerian state being able to be seen as being able to provide public goods for the average person. And so the lack of security allows people with guns to do whatever they want. And again, most of the insecurity outside of the Northeast is related to kidnapping and robbery. It's not politically motivated, it's economically motivated. Yeah. So that tells you something about the, the dysfunction of the Nigerian state. However, if you look across West Africa and you start with the framework of, well, let's start with level of governance and then let's see how that relates to level of political violence, instability, insurgency. You do see across West Africa countries that have faced very little organized political violence, right? from Senegal, Ghana, even more recently, even though Cote d'Ivoire had gone through a period of coups and stability, civil war, and yes. still perhaps could fall back into that, even as we've had specific terrorist attacks within Cote d'Ivoire, you know, the economy's actually been growing pretty well, governance is actually not too bad, infrastructure is not too bad, the security forces are fairly well trained. Cote d'Ivoire has not faced, uh, Ghana has not faced, Senegal's not faced, even though they have you know, large Muslim populations, especially in the north, adjoining countries that are facing significant crises, they are not facing the same levels of violence and starting of an insurgency. So governance at all levels is the first best defense against any kind of civil war, insurgent, jihadist uh, mobilization. Um, and that is as true when you start from West Africa, when you go through Chad, you go through Nigeria, you go through Cameroon which has had the same president for 40 years, which tells you something about governance, into Sudan, South Sudan, and into Eastern Congo, and of course, in Somalia. So yeah. in every case, it's not that the violence has caused governance and security. In every one of those cases, there was bad governance before the civil war. That the state institutions that were in present were not universally designed to help the average person on the street right. and so we can't forget that there is a deeper political element to all this and i think perhaps maybe that's why the ethiopian agreement sort of seemed to come up so fast is that there was no military solution to the ethiopian civil war between the tigrayan region leaders and addis there was just there was no military solution you could have had a stalemate for a long period of time hundreds of thousands of civilians would have died just from lack of medicine, lack of food. But probably the weight of the military effort probably did tip against the Tigrayan, uh, the TPLF people. But there could have been a low-level insurgency that lasted another 20 or 30 years. It did It did before. Ethiopia's had long periods of civil war. Yeah. 
So, so I think people say, okay, wait, let's try and sort this out. Let's have a political settlement because the military option, you nobody's going to have a straight victory. Nobody's going to be able to get everything they want through military means. Let's get international pressure, international influence. And in this case, the African Union to say, look, let's get realistic people. How many lives are you willing to spend for what many Ethiopians still don't understand in terms of what was the actual basis for this conflict? So that's a positive sign. When people start to realize that the military option is not going to be the answer, yeah. um, you look at governance, you look at political settlement, you look at compromise. And without those things, and then with external pressure, you need to have external pressure or else some people will not change their strategic calculus. Thank you very much, Professor Roberts, for this rich insight into African security. Unfortunately, we will have to end here and continue again on our next that episode. That was the first part of a great conversation about security issues in Africa. Thank you very much, Gershon and Professor Roberts, for being with us today. I'm looking forward to the second part of this conversation. Thank you very much to the listeners of our Securityscape podcast. You can find us at Securityscape on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Stay tuned for part two in December. See you next time. That was Securityscape. Security